You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen with Spinneys. Only on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer and this is Farmer's Kitchen brought to you by Spinneys, getting you in the mood for the weekend with all things food, whether it is picking up ingredients from your local store and hopefully giving you an idea of what to do with them or letting the other people do the heavy lifting. We have got ideas galore and experts to inspire. Starting off and getting cheesy with Connor Roman. He's the category manager at Spinney's, responsible for the deli and meal solutions. What is new on our shelves? And he's making a bold claim. The best cheddar he has ever tasted, all to be revealed. And did you know that UA grows some of the best blueberries available. Finding out more from Usama from EGA, it's uh, all about not just size matters, but how they grow them. A collaboration with some fuzzy friends. I visited the Diver Bay Oyster Farm to meet the founder, Ramey Murray. He was giving us the origin of that, why it was a bit of an unexpected move for him career-wise, and where you can now find these oysters here in the UAE and beyond. And we had Indian food on the menu, not once, but twice. Speaking to Hirsch from Rubaru, and also Chef Ankur from the brand new restaurant, The Crossing. Two restaurants taking very different approaches, but each sounding equally delicious. And we brought in Omar Shahib. He is the general manager of Bucket and DIFC, a restaurant that has always been very, very big on sustainability. But what does that actually mean? What does it represent on the menu? And why have they decided to reveal their carbon emissions? He was on hand to explain why this could be a move of the future. And we were speaking to Benjamin Mann. He is the man at Koya Middle East. And what does it mean to scoop not just one, but two of the spots in the restaurant's 50 best list for the MENA region? He was explaining what it took to get there. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. It is all about food today. And joining us on the line, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to insult you, Connor, but are you Dubai's cheesiest man? How are you? <laughs> I'm very good, thank you, Helen. Um, yes. All the, all the better for that introduction. Yeah. <laughs> Officially, Connor Roman is the category manager for Delhi and Meal Solutions. So you're the cheese buyer. You're the man responsible for, well, I'll tell you what, come Christmas time, I couldn't stop buying the cheeses you were bringing in because it felt like a little present to myself every time I went in. We're going to be talking about some of the latest. Whoa. Oh, are you all right? Sorry. <laughs> Excuse you. Okay, you gave some background noise there. Sorry. <laughs> so, fantastic to have you with us. We're going to be picking your brains on all things cheese. And as I said, talking about some of the new things on the shelves, including, well, the best cheddar you've ever tasted. Right. We need to get to the bottom of this. What in your mind, when you, but when you've got, you've got to think about the world as well, the world of cheese and the global offerings of cheese, are there any countries that you think maybe not do it best, but definitely do it really well, Connor? I mean, you know, France is, is a really obvious answer to that question. Um, probably the most famous country for cheese in the world. Uh, but I also really love cheeses from Italy. Um, and I'm particularly proud of, uh, of some of the cheeses that we're bringing in from Italy now that we've been working on a little labor of love over the past, uh, the past year or so um, to bring to market some real staples, very famous cheeses, um, in our Spinney's food brand, excitingly, mm-hmm. uh, which we're starting to establish more and more within the category and that gives us a great opportunity to bring high-quality uh, products that are very authentic, made in the traditional manners, um, but at fantastic value. So, as I said, we've been working on these four products for, for at least a year now, 
Um, and Come finally, on, Connor, make us hungry. Finally brought them to market. You, <laughs> um, what's on the menu? So uh, we've got one of the most famous cheeses, a classic mozzarella. Um, now it's made from um, whole Italian cow milk uh, in Italy, flown over, very fresh, beautifully uh, light, milky. Um, and I, I had myself with uh, a little bit of, of local tomato from Pure Harvest nice. and some fresh basil the other day and a little crazy salad. And it, it was absolutely fantastic. Um, so that that's a, a real simple one. That's uh, about as good as my cooking skills get. But, um, <laughs> now, <laughs> but the ingredients make it work. <laughs> and they don't have to do a lot. When the ingredients are good, you don't need to be doing all bells and whistles. Sometimes, as you say, it's about choosing some lovely fresh produce, bringing it together. Um, now, this uh, the cheese you're bringing over from Italy, it's from a family-owned company. And I know that Spinney's obviously works really, really closely with producers, with farmers. Have you managed to get yourself over there yet, Connor? I haven't yet. That's a, that's a, a, a point of contention. And I think definitely later this year, I'll, I'll be making my way over Italy to, um, to meet the family, milk some cows and, um, and get involved in stirring some curds and, uh, and get involved in the full production process. Definitely. Now, Connor, I'm, I'm intrigued. For anyone listening today who really wants to get their hands on that 500 dirham voucher to spend in store, what would you spend it on? So I think uh, a big treat for me would uh, would be some Wagyu steak, actually. Uh, I should probably promote my own categories and say cheese, but um, <laughs> I'd, I'd start off with some Wagyu steak, a bit of Penderson broccoli, uh, maybe some some baby potatoes, so I could make a, a nice nice healthy dinner, um, but with that bit of indulgence in the wagyu. And then for afters, I would probably go to, as you referenced earlier, the the best cheddar that I've ever tasted in my life. So the um... don't tell us, don't tell us. <laughs> We're going to find out next what Conan Roman category manager Deli Meal Solutions, the cheese man at Spinney's, thinks is the best cheddar he's ever tasted. That's next. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen with Spinneys. Only on Dubai Eye 103.8. Getting you in the mood for the weekend with lots of foodie chat and joining us live on the line is the category manager for Delhi Meal Solutions. He is the cheese buyer, Connor Roman. Um, Connor, you've already made me seriously, seriously hungry. Um, and also Fridays in our house is homemade pizza day. I got my husband a pizza oven for Christmas, which is probably one of the most selfish gifts I've ever got anyone because it is the gift that keeps on giving to me <laughs> because friday is when he makes pizza um so you're bringing your own baby mozzarella um there from part of the spinney's food label uh, how do you feel about using other cheeses on pizzas is there anything you think would work really well would melt well bit of taste Ooh, i i mean i'm a bit of a traditionalist uh, i i think you've got to make sure there is some mozzarella on there at least um, but I, I know people sometimes add a little bit of mascarpone actually around the crust mm, nice. uh, to give it a little sweet uh, sweet bite along there and a, a bit more moisture. So you could give that a go. One that he's muttering uh, about trying is like a fig and goat's cheese and, and honey. So we'll see how I'll leave it in the hands of Chef chef Farmer. I look forward to hearing about that. <laughs> I'll yeah, report back. That sounds fantastic. Um, yeah. So let's talk cheese because you've made a bold shout. You have said the best cheddar you've ever tasted ever in your cheese career is what Where, what what is the origin story and is it still available um it absolutely is still available so uh not to be too cheesy in the books for my uh, introduction but this one really captured my heart when oh. we uh, when we found it last year it's um 
It's a vintage organic cheddar from Godminster uh, in Somerset in the UK. It comes in a beautiful little heart-shaped wax truckle, and we brought it in for Valentine's Day. Now, they were very popular, um, but there are still a few that are, that are kicking around, and we've actually decided that because it's such a good cheddar, it's so creamy, so melt-in-the-mouth, um, so rich in flavour, that we're going to keep it there all year round. Um, so in some form or another, you will be able to get this cheddar in Spinney's, uh for at least the rest of the year, and oh. probably for as long as I'm here. Good man, I like it. <laughs> You're picking your battles on the on the heart shaped cheese. I mean, I would say, is that not love? Apart from the lactose intolerant amongst us, you know, for Valentine's Day, a card, a card, and some heart shaped cheddar. Happy days indeed. So that just remind us of the name, so we know what to look for. Uh, so it's the Godminster Vintage Organic Cheddar. Okay. Um, we also have one that comes with truffle mixed in for the truffle lovers uh, out there. Um, that's incredibly popular as well and, and it's a trend that we've seen continue to grow so there's, there's two options the plain cheddar or the one with, with truffle um, both fantastic Now before I let you get back to uh, to your day there is another special Italian cheese that is worth our attentions as well tell us a little bit about the history the taste and just how long it takes to be able to enjoy it um, you're going you're gonna to have to prompt me because I'm not sure which specific yes, yeah, I, I, you I, know. I recall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the one you're talking about. We've got many fantastic aged Italian cheeses, but I think the one that you're referring to is the 30-month aged, the Netti Parmigiano-Reggiano. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's absolutely beautiful. It's got a very rich, complex flavour. It's matured for 30 months. So you start to get the development of those uh, beautiful, crunchy uh, calcium lactate crystals that people go crazy for. Um, it's, it's available from Zanetti, who are the partners who are helping us with our other Italian soft cheeses. Uh, we're really, really proud to carry that in the range. And it, it's, um, yeah, it, it, it adds a, an extra depth of flavour to anything that you pair it with. Well, I've already just, I've just been sent a shopping list for me to pop in on the way home uh, for for the farmer pizza night, and I can tell you what, <laughs> there's going to be a few more cheeses in the in the basket after our chat. Connor. Thank you so That's so much. <laughs> well, have a Thanks, wonderful Alex. weekend ahead. Keep us keep us informed of everything. As we know, we love celebrating local produce. We love the fact that you at Spinney's bring us the best of global as well, and that definitely is the case on the cheese front. Connor Roman, there, category manager. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen with Spinney's. Only on Dubai Eye 103.8. We love talking food on Farmer's Kitchen here on Dubai Eye 103.8. And joining us now might be my favourite person. I am somewhat hooked on berries, whether it is salads, on yoghurt, porridge, and every single morning in a smoothie. So maybe Salman Nadi, the general manager of Elite Global Fresh Trading, leading producer here in the UAE. The brand owner of Farm French Produce can help us out, explain a little bit what happens behind the scenes when it comes to getting those beautiful berries on shelves and on our tables too. Salman, how are you? Yeah, good morning. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And it's um, it's a really interesting topic, to be honest, because what we've seen a lot of over the last certainly two, five years is so much more produce grown here in the UAE. When we think about food security, food safety, the amount of kilometers traveled, it's all ticks in the right columns, to be honest. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of the company? That's true. Let me tell you something. Elite Agro is a company that has been born out of aspiration for creating a new green history on the sense. 
So on the sense of this, our great country, let's put it this way. Elite Agro has grown ex- exponentially since its inception in 2010. We are currently recognized uh, locally and regionally as one of the leading local producers and distributors of fresh fruits and vegetables. The sustainability factor I know is huge for EAG. Like that you're thinking about, obviously I mentioned their kilometers traveled, but also the way you grow your berries. Can you tell us a little bit about the conditions? Can you paint us a picture of what some of the spaces look like? You know, you know how, how, how much resources are, are, are very appreciated in the country and always as an agriculture company and as a local brand owner and distributor, we always try to find ways how to can control these resources to the best possible way. Mm-hmm. So definitely it's a tough environment. When we started the project like a couple of years ago, especially on the blueberries, we have never thought that it would be so successful, especially we are, our, our, our farms, we have currently like uh, uh, four farms, uh, two in Abu Dhabi and one in Ayan. And most of our farms are, you know, in the desert. So in such environment, uh, it was tough to reach where we reach today. But we can proudly say that we are the only producer of blueberry within the UAE. And we are the largest producer of fresh produce within the country. So we have done great since then. Uh, and the sky is still the limit. We have a lot of projects in the pipeline that we're currently started and working on. I would also like to add, the blueberries are enormous. They, they've, they are, they've got to be winning some records on, on size and taste. But anyone who hasn't we, actually we, we it, almost incredible. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We almost won a record for that, uh, worldwide record, but we were like second. But uh, the thing is, what we are having of blueberries, it's a special breed of blueberries from Mountain Blue Orchard. And we have four extremely nice varieties, uh, like Eureka, Eureka Sunrise, First Blush, and other varieties, which is considered the best. Actually, we have never, uh, all consumers who try it, they love it. And we are always being demanded uh, throughout our supply to our consumers to maintain uh, this. But as you know, in fruits and vegetables, there is all the seasonality. So mainly we provide around five months seasonality within our production within the UE market. So I'm already a huge fan of the blueberries. What other berries is... EAG bringing to the table? I can put it this way for the first time. Uh, we're launching this year. We're having uh, three. Uh, you know, it's when you say berries, there are the four berries. So we had one. Currently, we're launching the rest uh, of the berries, which is the blackberry, raspberry, and strawberry. On the strawberry, we have like three varieties. And uh, on the blackberry and raspberry, we also partnered with a very good breeder which is very word. And we are currently uh, having uh, two varieties that's launched in the market and uh, coming to the peak uh, soon, as they say. And all grown here in the UAE. I love this phrase all. before about, you know, green amongst the sand. And it's such a beautiful yeah. image to think of these, you know, these little jewels, you know, being, being grown right here on our, on our sandy shores. How are they harvested, Usama? Can you tell us what, about that process? 
First, we, we, we probably can say uh, it's proudly grown in the UAE. The harvesting process is the most important part within our entire operation. We always make sure that the process, uh, we maintain the highest standard of hygiene in order to maintain the best quality to reach to the best berry taste. So what, how it's done, it directly go within the process of picking from the farm uh, directly uh, uh, to the end consumer. We try to have two-stage process where uh, no one will touch the fruit other than the picker and the end consumer. Wow. The entire process operate within our, the most important part is the post-harvest procedure where we make sure that within 30 minutes, the fruits are sent uh, to a, a pre-cooling uh, stage in which we can drop or rapid cooling, we can call it. You can drop the temperature of the fruit from above 30 degrees Celsius to 5 degrees Celsius. This by itself, it will preserve the shelf life. It will prolong it, preserve the fruits, and will give it a better taste. So what does that mean then in terms of time from farm to shelf? Do you have a a goal in mind, and and what do you manage to achieve? We always always make sure uh, that from farm to shelf, it goes less than 24 hours. We provide the freshest fruits and vegetables. And uh, actually, uh, we are known for our quality in the market and what we present as a company. So what does that mean then for using preservatives? You're talking about this kind of this blast cooling and being able to juice so fast. Do you use preservatives at any point during the process of summer? No, Helen. All the, anything we use is harmless. Uh, and again, I can re-emphasize on what I said. It is all about the post-harvesting procedure and the handling procedures within our supply chain, which we take the most care out of it to make sure that consumer is getting the best quality available in the market. Let's go back. Sorry, Simon. Let's go back a step, if you don't mind, because I've heard you use bumblebees for pollination. I love a bumblebee. Who doesn't? we, we, we We don't actually use bumblebees. We partner with bumblebees. <laughs> it's a collaboration. <laughs> because, yeah, it's a collaboration with bumblebees. It is a very organic and sustainable method of pollination. Actually, during the peak, let's, let's put it this way, during the peak of the season, most of the flowers are in bloom. When it has reached this stage, each flower is being, uh, each flower goes between being visited by a bee between 18 to 23 times to uh, until it reach uh, its lifetime wow. so it's it's very good way of pollination and organic way i would love to visit one of these farms have you ever had thoughts about opening up the public so people can come and see the process maybe pick their own as well definitely you're welcome at any point of time <laughs> someone thank you so much for telling us a little bit about what happens behind the scenes and what we can look forward to in the future I can't believe you nearly got a world record for the size of those blueberries because it, and it's, not, yeah. it's not just about, you know, how they look on the shelf, although we know that that's important from a consumer point of view. But you don't go back time and time again, like so many of your fans do if they didn't taste delicious. So you're clearly doing something very right indeed. And, and what a point of pride that they're grown right here in the UAE. Thank you for joining us yeah. from EAG. This Thank second. you.
Thank you for giving me the time. Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. We are talking food on Farmer's Kitchen as ever today. And yes, food that you can buy in Spanish and create at home, but also food that you don't need to make yourself. We're shining a light on some of our favourite restaurants and a big focus on Indian cuisine on the show today because a brand new modern Indian restaurant has opened, each dish made with a twist. And the man behind it joins us now, Hirsch Suri, originally from Mabasa in Kenya and sharing a little bit about the, the origin, really, of some of these dishes and the imagination that you're bringing here in Dubai. How are you, Hirsch? Hey, how's it going? I'm good, how are you? I am worried you're going to make me hungry because I was driving back from Fajera over lunchtime and I had a packet of crisps for lunch, which I think is a problem because I've heard that the food on your menu is phenomenal. So I hear that even though you aren't a chef, you've always wanted to open your own restaurant. So let's start with the name. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, so we opened Rubaru in downtown in November. Uh, Rubaru means um, face-to-face. So that's kind of the foundation of our concept as well. It's real casual dining. We're in a neighborhood in downtown. Mm-hmm. You know, we want it to be that place where if you don't know what to do or you're driving back from Fajera and all you've had, a, all you've had <laughs> is, a, is a packet of crisps. Don't crisp, get me wrong. They, they, were, they were prawn cocktail discos. They were a good bag of crisps, but it wasn't. Oh, no, shocking. I know, I'm shocking. Oh, no. Right, I'm taking your microphone down. Prawn cocktail crisps are amazing if you're in the right mood for them. But this is a drop-in casual... I mean, we are going to be talking about fine dining later in the show, but I think for many of us, that's a kind of a, a rarity. You know, we're an eating out culture here in Dubai, and sometimes it is just a case of wanting to pop out and grab something that's really good and something we couldn't make at home. What What are some of the dishes on the menu that you feel like would kind of communicate what your your, your foodie philosophy is all about at Rubaru? I think the menu is very chef-focused. You know, we cook the food that, you know, the team wants to cook, our head chef, Gaurav, wants to cook. And in general, I think what we've managed to create is a menu that, you know, we are an Indian restaurant, so we have your classics, like your butter chicken, your chicken tikka masala, your dals. But, you know, we've also left a lot of space for us to be creative. Mm -hmm. We've taken dishes from East India. So there's a corn pudding in East India that we've kind of reworked into a corn hummus. We serve that with polenta crisps. Or there's a uh, peanut chili chutney from uh, Mumbai, Maharashtra. Mm-hmm. We've kind of changed that into like this super, super spicy chicken wing starter. So it's kind of a menu that reflects how young we are mm-hmm. as an like, organization. And yeah, there's a bit of everything. I think that's kind of what the whole point of Rubaru was to be. You know, it's meant to be inclusive. So you don't have to put on your heels. You're on good. Uh, flip-flop friendly. <laughs> very what kind of dishes did you um, eat growing up in Mombasa? And have you brought some of those flavours to Dubai? Um, so growing up, I mean, we grew up in a very North Indian Punjabi family. So we ate mainly North Indian food. Uh, Kenyan cuisine, you know, is not getting the, the kind of the voice of the platform it needs. There are some Kenyan influences on our dishes. So like uh, we have a dessert. So in Mombasa, there's a very strong Italian population. So cassata is a really famous dessert there. We've kind of, it's kind of like a layered ice cream cake with, uh, we make three different types of homemade ice creams and we layer it into a cake. Um, And yeah, you know, there's tandoori chicken, barbecue is a big culture in Kenya. We kind of didn't go to the initial menu with a tandoori chicken dish and then promptly got told by every customer that came in, uh, how can you have it? 
You are wrong. It might be your restaurant, but the customer's always right. And you've got some personal touches on there. I understand one of them is one of the dishes named after your grandfather. Yeah, so my, I mean, my background is Indian, but my family is quite diverse. So my mom's family actually grew up in Iran. So my mom was born in Iran. My dad lived in Tehran. So like our first memories of him was making, you know, Iranian style kebabs, kubide kebabs mm-hmm. on the grill every Friday. And Chef himself grew up in Delhi where kebabs are such a popular kind of dish. So it was kind of just, you know, like an organic creation where I was like, yeah, my granddad always used to make this. And, you know, Chef's memories on like, you know, old Delhi style kebabs. And we kind of combined that. And we named the dish Bagusi Kebab. Bagu is kind of named after my granddad. It's his nickname. So whenever anyone asks uh, why is it named that, they they get to hear that it's uh, named after Yona's granddad, which makes them proud. So must, you I must, you you must be it. proud as well, though. What's it like seeing this dream come to life and to see people coming in and enjoy dishes that are so personal to you? I'll answer that in two stages. Initially, it's surreal. Like you see the board go up and you see, um, you see like the name, the Instagram, like the followers grow and, and so much. And like it starts off with like just a plan on a piece of paper mm-hmm. and to actualize it, you just don't know like how to react. Mm-hmm. And then very quickly, you know, you just kind of get used to it and you just want to keep on serving people, get as many people in as possible because that's why we got into this. Um, the whole point by being casual, by being, you know, not that expensive, we, we want to just feed as many people as possible. I feel sometimes in Dubai, we just go for scale. Mm-hmm. I agree. We just want, we just want, you know, the 55th floor with the view of <laughs> X and the tempura, black cod and the truffle. Barata. And it's, <laughs> yeah, and, it, and it's just good to, to kind of just dial it down and, you know see people and yeah now it's just you know it's kind of addictive like we we love when the restaurant is full on the weekends and we just want more and more people to come in can we talk about price point because you mentioned that kind of inclusivity could you give us a bit of a guideline of what you're looking at for a main for example Hish? so how we usually recommend a meal is so the menu is kind of split into small plates and big plates so if let's say you're going to come in as a two we'd recommend maybe two small plates a main course and, you know, a couple of breads or some rice. And it shouldn't really come to any more than, I'd say, 200 dirham per person as an average. Uh, 200 dirhams per couple, sorry, as an average. So 100 dirhams per person. And if you want to spend a bit less, then you can spend a bit less. And if you want to treat yourself, you can spend a bit more. But, yeah, I think usually we we look at 90 to 100 dirhams per person as the general average. I love this coming back to feeding people, to sharing stories, to for you sharing your kind of foodie philosophy and bringing in chef as well. Um, if Pun's going to go this weekend, Hirsch, what do you feel like you haven't had the full rhubarb experience unless you have eaten what? I think there's two dishes that you need to have. As a small plate, I would recommend our ceviche. And that's what I alluded to earlier. The ceviche is such a non-Indian dish. And the fact that, you know, we've given it a spin. It's like a South Indian mango curry, which we've turned into mm-hmm. sea ceviche. It's so refreshing. It hits like every flavor palette that you you need. It's a bit sour. It's a bit sweet. It's a bit spicy. And then on the polar opposite, you have to have the butter chicken. I mean, that's why you left the house, right? So it's... it's <laughs> 
It's I feel like you're talking just, directly to me. Butter chicken is often why I leave the house. <laughs> so, it's kind of just nailed the variety. It. It's the variety that we offer. And, you know, I see it sometimes, you know, when the, a younger generation of customers come with their older parents, like, you know, the younger, the younger, more like widely eaten palate, mm-hmm. like get excited with, you know, the ceviche or a, a different take on pani puri and, and so on. And the older generation, you know, they try it. They Maybe they like it. They're a bit confused. But as soon as the main courses come or the traditional curries come, they're like, oh, wow, this is amazing. So, yeah, there's a bit for everyone. Well, and I think nothing, nothing kind of gets it on the head as those two dishes. They're like the polar opposite and they're on the same menu. I love the sound of it. Thank you so much for sharing your passion today, your enthusiasm, for feeding people, sharing stories and flavours as well. It is in downtown. What's the best way of checking out the menu, seeing what's happening? Uh, I'm guessing Instagram. Let's get you some more followers. It it is Instagram. Like We can try many. The best way is to call the number and speak to us. But I'm pretty sure Instagram is a lot easier. Amazing. Hirsch, thank you so much for being with us. Hirsch Suri, the founder and director of Rubarid. For anyone who has been in touch asking for the, how to spell it, it's R-O-O-B-A-R-U. If you want to message me on 4001, I will happily reply with the Instagram so you can have a look and get just as hungry as I am. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen with Spinneys. Only on Dubai Eye 103.8. Helen Farmer with you and we talk food on Fridays and we are lucky enough to spend the last couple of days in beautiful Fajera. One of the adventures we had involved getting up at the crack of dawn and arriving at the most incredible space. You might have seen Dibba Bay oysters on your shelves, but we managed to go and look for them in real life. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. Dibba Bay oysters have become not just locally famous, but internationally famous. They are being exported to everywhere from Russia to the Maldives. And the man responsible joining us now, Ramey Murray, a truly relaxed oyster farmer. How are you, sir? <laughs> Very well, thank you. Great to have you here. Well, thank you for welcoming us. It's mm. unlike anywhere I've been here in the UAE. And I've seen the name Dibba Bay oysters mm. increasingly from your beautiful shack on the coastline yep. to the shelves of Spinney's and now on some of the most prestigious restaurant menus in the world. Um, it's been an incredible journey. Where did it start for you? Um, it started for me in 2016, sort of early 2016. We did a, a pilot study uh, because nobody ever thought that this would be possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's com- it goes completely against conventional wisdom that, uh, that you can grow oysters in this climate. Uh, so we did a little test because I had an had an idea that it would work. Uh, I was not coming from aquaculture. I didn't study aquaculture. I didn't study marine biology. I w- I've always been an entrepreneur. I've started different businesses. Uh, so I think because I was coming at it at a completely just sort of fresh angle, looking at things, I I looked at the data of what oysters could withstand temperature-wise and found that it is on this side, not on the Dubai side, but on this side, uh, the ocean's a bit cooler. Um, and it is within the range. It's the top end of the range, but it's within the range. So we had an idea and we tried it, and uh, the pilot went extremely well. And, and then it just sort of grew from there. We just went, went, to, went to the government in Fajera and, and presented it as an idea, and they were totally behind it and said, go to Dibba, that's where the cleanest water is. Uh, so we came here early 2016 and, and got going. And it's <laughs> not just about the viability of, of growing the oysters. It's also mm. about the taste Yep. The, the 
properties that they bring from the health point of view. Can yep. you tell us a little bit about what comes out of the water that we as customers and as diners mm. actually enjoy on our plates? We have a very meaty oyster. And, and this is, and if you look at the ocean here, you see it's, it's often a kind of soup of green and blues. And, um, um, and this is the algae in the water. Most warm oceans are quite clear. You don't have a lot of algae. But because we're right on the edge of the continental shelf here, there's very, very deep water not very far away. So we get an upwelling of nutrients, and it mixes with the surface water. So we have this wonderful combination of warm water and lots of food. So the oysters, um, their metabolism is controlled by the heat. So if the water is warm, they try to grow fast. So if the food isn't there to support that growth, they just die. Whereas here we have that food, so they're on fast forward. They're growing really, really fast. The food is there to support it. So you get this lovely, plump, meaty oyster. Um, you also get a very firm meat, so the texture is quite firm. Um, and then taste-wise, it's, it's, there's nothing we can do to influence the taste. It's purely natural. There is no difference between... This is the wonderful thing about oysters all over the world. There's no difference in the diet of a farmed oyster to a wild oyster because we're not feeding them anything. They're feeding naturally in the ocean. So whether it's sitting in our net or sitting on a rock, it's feeding, the sa it's feeding on the same phytoplankton and, and microalgae. So there is such an abundance of different species of algae in the water here. They're, they're feeding on that. They're naturally feeding. And so that's what gives the wonderful taste. And you, you'll also find that the taste changes slightly throughout the year because there's different algae in the water uh, according to the season. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen with Spinneys. Only on Dubai Eye 103.8. Talking food and celebrating local produce, Dibba Bay oysters are on menus across the UA and beyond. And we were lucky enough to go and meet the founder, Ramey Murray, to find out what exactly goes into bringing them to our shelves and to our plates, but also if they're good for us. Let's find out. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. What are some of the vitamins and minerals you can enjoy as a, a, a nice benefit of, uh, um, of eating it? They are extremely healthy. So uh, I, I guess the most common thing that people will be aware of is the, the protein levels. So there's a, nice, there's a nice crunchy muscle within the oyster. And it's actually the same muscle that you'll eat from a scallop. It's the muscle that holds the, the shell together. So there's two or three grams of protein in, in one of these oysters. Um, it's full of vitamin D, it's vitamin C, uh, there's zinc, there's magnesium. I mean, it's an absolute powerhouse um, of, of vitamins and minerals. Um, and I always say that this, um, there's all, all these sort of legends about uh, oysters being an aphrodisiac. <laughs> I, I, I think there's a little bit of science in there because they're so chock full of, of, of vitamins and minerals. I mean, they really give you, you a bit of a... good. They make you, you the, have the, been the best, <laughs> your best self. <laughs> and can we talk about that protein piece? Because mm -hmm. some of the big concerns for the future of the planet is around where are we as humans going to be getting our sources of protein from in yeah. the future? What, what role do you think oysters play in perhaps providing some element of a solution, yeah. either regionally or internationally? Well, I mean, um, obviously they're a, they're a gourmet product. Um, so they're, they're never going to be sort of a, a mass solution for protein. But they, they, they can certainly fulfill a role um, because you, we, have a, we have the potential to, to grow a lot of oysters here in these waters. Um, we've, our production at the moment is three to 400,000 oysters a month. 
We've just doubled the size of our concessions, so we can theoretically get up near a million a month if we want to in the coming years. So we can, we, we can absolutely service this whole market and this whole region. So there's no need to... It, it's more a food security play. Mm -hmm. There's no need to import oysters from anywhere else in the world. We can supply the whole region from here. And you're supplying beyond as well. As I yeah. mentioned, you're now... Yeah. And this is what I love about where the UE's come to over the last mm. few years. Rather than bringing in so much, we're now exporting yeah. you know, everything from the blueberries we're talking about um, mm. this evening as well to the oysters. Where are they going to? Yeah, so we are exporting to Hong Kong, uh, Mauritius, Maldives um, and Russia. Um, and I, I was asked the other day, like, what, what gives you the confidence mm. to do that? Why do you think they would be interested? And my, my response was, well, we've made it in Dubai. And, and um, this is the modern day. You can make it in New York. You can make it yeah, anywhere. Yeah, yeah, because it's there is such a vibrant F and B scene right. um, in Dubai and the U, the whole UAE. But obviously, it's it's quite concentrated in Dubai, um, and it people are very discerning. And we are used to importing the importing the finest products from all over the world, and we're used to just getting the best of the best all the time. All year round. So if you can crack this market and be accepted by consumers and, um, and uh, be celebrated as a, as a gourmet product, then you, you know you're onto something. If you're going to buy it from mm -hmm. Spinney's, and I feel like this is such a, a barrier for a lot of people, mm -hmm. when I go out to dine, I'll often order something that I would never think to cook at home. Yep. Um, how? Preparing oysters at home. Yeah. Any top tips from you as an oyster farmer, Romy? Opening them. Mm. It can be quite intimidating. Going, how, uh, how am I going <laughs> like to open them? Hand. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fingers are good. Yeah. So um, the thing with our oysters is they're relatively, it's, it's relatively mm -hmm. easy to open as far as oysters go because they're quite a uniform shape. Um, it's a relatively thin shell because uh, they've grown quite quickly out here. We, we have an eight-month growth period as opposed to a three-year growth period in, in colder climates. I would say just... Give it a go. I've got some videos online <laughs> how to shuck an oyster. <laughs> uh, some YouTube tutorials. Yeah, and it's surprising. It's surprisingly easy once you if if you follow a tutorial and get and, and have a go at it. It's very rewarding to be able to to shuck a, a box of oysters for some guests or, or that, have it at home. That is a power move exactly. at a dinner party, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> but what about how to eat? I mean, when we think about the flavour profile of your dibba bay oysters, mm -hmm. you've got this sweetness, yeah. you've got this kind of umami. Yeah. How do you think balancing in terms of what you serve? Well, that, with? that's a key point with, with oysters in general. Um, but when you talk about the human palate, mm. you mentioned umami. Um, that's Saltiness, of course. The salt, the sweetness... Um, the only other thing that we can taste is acid. So they're the, they're the four things we can taste. So, the, uh, so with oysters, we've got this nice high protein level. We've got this high umami level in our oysters. We've got the saltiness of the ocean. We've got the sweetness of the flesh from the, the glycogen stores in it. The only thing missing is acidity. So it's really fun. That's why traditionally you'll have lemon or vinaigrette. And that's where you're looking for that balance. So, uh, so it's really easy to, to balance the oyster with a little bit of, a little bit of vinaigrette or, or lemon. Ooh, okay, I think you're making everybody hungry. Now, what's next? I know you've even got, we're talking about you know, being competent, if not excellent, at oyster shucking. There's a competition in the future. Yes, yes. So we're having the inaugural Dibba Bay Oyster Festival, uh, which is going to be the first week of March. So it's, it's coming up soon. Um, we're going to have an open day at the farm here in Dibba, which, you have, which you have to book for. But on the 6th, we're going to have a shucking competition. So it's going to be the UAE's first annual shucking competition. 
And in terms of the rest of Dubai, you've got that beautiful um, hut down at yep. uh, the fishing village in Jumeirah. Yep. We've got a second one opening uh, on JBR. It's a fertile <laughs> ground for both ideas and oysters. If you're inspired by what you're eating, you can find them on the shelves at Spinney's. And yes, please do tag us in any videos that you do of you shucking some oysters. Ramy, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you again to the team at Dibba Bay Oysters, Ramy Murray, the man behind uh, what you might be enjoying. And you can find them in the chilled section, ready there on the shelves of Spinney's. Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. Meeting the chef this afternoon in his chef anchor, the co-founder of Lemon Butter and the Crossing Restaurant. It's just opened at the H Hotel Indian and extremely excited to find out a little bit more about the menu. Chef, how are you? Hi, Helen. How are you doing? I'm hungry, to be honest, is the, is the absolute honest answer. <laughs> We've been talking about food all afternoon. I had lunch in the car, which was a packeted prawn cocktail discos and half a Twix. And I, I feel like you're not going to help me here, chef, by talking about the menu at the crossing <laughs> at all. Um, I haven't been yet. I'm going to come next week. Um, so I'm really excited to, to yeah, hear a little bit more about the you. menu. Thank you. So can you paint us a bit of a picture about what it's like to walk into the space? Uh so at the crossing, when we are ideating the restaurant, I mean, in Dubai especially, you have so much of Indian food, so many varieties. You're close to India. The produce is not a problem. But one thing that comes across is that every Indian restaurant paints a picture of a vibrant, bright India full of colors and stuff. We wanted to stay away from that because that's, that's not, I feel, is not the real representation of the modern India. Mm-hmm. Modern India is, as I see it, is very minimalistic, uh, simple. We have created the space in such that, you know, you let the food shine and do the talking. Uh, the furniture is very modern, uh, very minimalistic. The restaurant decors as such, uh, natural light shines through. Uh, very, very minimalistic in pictures done by uh, painters who are, who in essence represent crossings. We have selected two of the painters who we work with. One of the painters is Sakti Berman, who does serigraphs. And the other painter that we work with uh, in the restaurant is Jahangir Sabawala. So both these painters kind of represent crossing in their work. Mm-hmm. So I wanted that all to come out and uh, make an impact in the entire decor. I mean, very interesting name for a restaurant to it be is. called Crossing, right? So why why do I call it Crossing? Is is one of the reasons is that if you look at any country, every country has certain common denominators. But look at India. India doesn't have any common denominator. There is no common ethnicity. There is no common language. There is no common uh, religion. Mm-hmm. And still there is this unseen social fabric that holds it together. But on the other hand, when you look at the Indian restaurants that commercially have been floating around internationally, you see that there is only representation of food from a certain part of India. Majorly, the food which is commercially represented uh, you know, I call it the butter chicken, butter naan generation. And that's where it <laughs> ends. You know, the food is from the northwest <laughs> frontier, right? You pretty much, you know, when you walk into an Indian restaurant, you know that I'm going to order my tikka, I'm going to order a kebab, maybe a biryani and a curry and you're done. So at Crossing, one of the biggest challenges was how can we define the menu and give platform to Indian food mm-hmm. on an international stage where you're actually representing food from across India? That's a so huge that's, that's challenge when because space, when we think about yeah. the geography of India, you know, we think about, you know, seafood and, you know, kind of those beautiful curries from Kerala as you're talking about, you know, the spicier um, North Indian as well. 
So how do you feel like you can do justice to an entire vast country through one menu? You, you're right, Helen. I mean, if you, if, you, if you refer to Lonely Planet, Lonely Planet said that, you know, India is the entire world given in one country. Mm-hmm. India has the entire seasons in one month. I mean, month, there would be summers in one part of India and winters in the other part of India. India has a huge coastline, huge coastline, which is unexplored. So what we have done is on the menu, we have picked up dishes during my travel. I mean, I grew up in a family of railway workmen. You know, my father was into the railways and he traveled across India on his work, uh, work trips. And I would accompany him. And I could see that there is so much sensibilities of different kinds of foods across different regions. Uh, and all of these dishes have different diverse flavors. So we picked up dishes from different places. We did a brainstorming with the kitchen team that I have and all these guys come from different places. So we picked up those dishes which are regionally done back home and uh, try to represent them in the restaurant. For example, one such dish is called Santiao. Now, Santiao comes from a state called Mizoram in northern eastern part of India. Uh, the borders are very close to China, Myanmar, and, uh, you know, the borders are porous. So it, it's essentially like a rice congee, but done in, with the herbs from that particular region. And it's a, it's a street-side food for them. It's very comforting for them. Now, Cut across three months down the line when we were training for the restaurant opening, we hired, we hired people from Myanmar as well. So one of these waitresses comes and says, you know what, in my country, this is this similar dish is called Santiago as well. So it, it reaffirms my faith in what we are trying to do at the crossing. It, it's the cross-pollination of cultures and bringing out dishes from there uh, and representing them on, on the restaurant menu. So that's, that's precisely what we're trying to do. Okay, you've already made me hungry, to be honest, chef. So do you feel like we were going to come over the weekend? Is there maybe two or three dishes that kind of sum up your foodie philosophy or really communicate your aim with the crossing that you just have to try? Uh, One of the dishes you have to have to try is is a dish called ragi kool. Ragi kool is basically finger millets. Uh, which is cooked along with a special type of rice which comes from down south in India. And then it is left to ferment with some yogurt. So that's one dish which I would definitely say represents crossing very well and you must try. Mm -hmm. And the other dish which I feel is very, uh, I wouldn't say innovative, but very challenging to to do is, is, is something we call the mutton palau. Now at crossing, we don't have a biryani. We don't have a naan as well on the menu. So we are, we are boldly stepping away from these two staples of Indian restaurant dishes, right? So we have this mutton, biri- uh, mutton pulao, which is done inside a pressure cooker. Mm-hmm. Now, pressure cooker has been a, an essential piece of equipment across Indian homes uh, all over India, irrespective of which region you come from. It cut down, cuts down the cooking time, locks in the nutrients, and it's a beautiful machine. Mm-hmm. So we, we bring the pressure, we cook the rice and the mutton in the pressure cooker, and there is no way to gauge whether it is cooked or not cooked because we release the pressure on the table. Oh my goodness, that is a risky move. And that's where we open it. <laughs> so, I mean, we, we, we have worked hard on it. Uh, the team is very skillful now and we do this. And this is something when it comes to the restaurant whistling, there, there, there is a bit of grokking on there that, you know, what is that on that table? Uh, it, it adds that Instagrammability mm-hmm. factor to it. At the same time, it locks all the flavors. So it is the flavors that the chef would have wanted you to experience and the, the lid is just open in front of you. 
So that that aroma of the spices and the rice itself and the lamb itself is beautiful. That's one thing that I would say definitely is a must try when you walk into the restaurant. And a little bit of drama as well, which I think we all like a bit of a bit of theatre at the table. Well, I mean, uh, well, this is this is. I wouldn't call it theatrics. I mean, I, I'm not a firm believer of theatrics. I feel the flavor uh, wins at the end of the day. So it, it is how we would have eaten at home. You know, if, if, if I was inviting you to eat at my home, I would quickly do something like this. And then, you know, at the time of eating, just open the lid and the flavors start releasing from there. So that's, that's what I would have done. So I'm not a very fan of, uh, you know, theater fancy theater's presentation. Sake. We mm-hmm. like to keep... Yeah, I mean, we we do things that actually make sense. So can, can I ask you, that, Chef? That's where my sensibilities lie. You yeah. you mentioned earlier there's no biryani. You you're not going down that I guess kind of perceived stereotypical route when it comes to Indian cuisine. What if customers start demanding mm-hmm. it? How would you feel if someone's like, I've I've been missold. I'm coming out for Indian. I want my chicken tikka yeah. masala. How would you How would you respond? So. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a very bold step that we are trying to take. We're, I mean, obviously, it will, it will have its own challenges and we will find our own niche. But then imagine a place like Dubai where you have Indian food. You're spoiled for choice in, with Indian food in Dubai, right? So when you're trying to make, uh, make an impact, trying to tell people what actually it is, for, I mean, one of the reasons, one of, one of the examples that I always quote is, you know, tomatoes, chilies, uh, potatoes, for that matter, they never ethnically belong to India. We never grew them. We never had them. These all came part of our uh, trade and stuff like that from other parts of the world, right? Similarly, rice, basmati, mm-hmm. is not something that I am very proud serving in the restaurant. We don't do basmati. There are so many other small grain, very, very aromatic rice varieties available in India, which never find place anywhere because the perception of a good rice is measured by how long the grain is. So we are trying to stay away from that. And yes, if the customer comes and asks for something like that, we try to politely explain that, you know, try something which is very close to that, mm-hmm. but a lot more flavorful. I love this. And more often than not, we have seen people being very acceptable around this here. Because I think we all want that sense of discovery. You know, when we go out, I love the idea mm-hmm. of it being an education piece as well, um, as well as an enjoyment to, mm-hmm. to leave mm-hmm. with your yeah, preconceptions yeah. somewhat, you know, if not shattered, then definitely yeah. explored uh, when it comes to the exploration of yeah. Indian cuisine. Chef, yeah. thank you so much for your time today. I know Fridays are very busy in the kitchens. I'm going to let you get back to your team at The Crossing. Thanks, Ellen. Um, looking forward to coming down next week. And uh, I think you can have a busy weekend ahead of you. Chef Anko, really, really appreciate it. And you can find Chef Anko and his team at The Crossing. It's the H Hotel. Um, really, it sounds, sounds fascinating, to be honest, to have those... Those ideas, those, I guess, as I said, stereotypes that we're used to seeing on so many menus just blown out of the water. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai I 103.8. Full of ideas and inspiration on the show this afternoon with some inspiring characters too. And DIFC Bokers has it's, Bokers been leading the way, often without us even realising when it comes to sustainability. In recent months, really ramping it up. The new spring menu is taking it up a notch using ingredients that celebrate local farmers, fishermen and artisans. And Omar Shahab is with us, Boca's GM and sustainability lead, to tell us a little bit more about making food from waste and why and how they've decided to calculate their carbon emissions. Omar, how are you? It's so, I don't know if you can see me, but it's so lovely to see your face. Yes, how I are can. you? 
You can see me. <laughs> Good, thanks. Hi. Yes, I can, yes. <laughs> I hope you didn't see me having a little dance along to Free Falling then. Um, now, we are talking food, of course, on Farmer's Kitchen Day, and sometimes that is to do with making good decisions about the food planning we do and getting ideas for recipes. And sometimes it's learning about people such as yourself and the chef at Boca as well about what is happening, you know, on the menu, but also behind the scenes. Now, sustainability has been front and centre for Boca for so, so long. Why did you, as GM and Sustainability Lead, decide that to make it such an integral part of who you are as a restaurant? Since inception, actually, just to give you a bit of background, um, since Boca was uh, created, because we were a homegrown brand, we wanted to dedicate a part of the menu to local ingredients. Now, what does that mean? Um, a lot, you know, we, we're obviously lucky to live uh, in the UAE, where we get access to all fabulous produce from all over the world. But we believe that we have, you know, we have this 1,400 kilometers of coastline. Uh, overlooking two oceans. So there's abundance of fish and seafood coming out from from these oceans. So we made made it a point to discover some of the uh, perhaps lesser known variety, some of the fish that not a lot of people cook with, things like kingfish, smaller fish variety like sardines. And obviously you have access to a lot of beautiful seafood as well. And that uh, that evolved over the years, um, especially with Debebe coming into, into market. Uh, we've been absolutely fascinated uh, with with these oysters, and that's all the oysters that we serve. Mm-hmm. So that so as as we went through the years, as um, new farms started popping up, uh, we increased the number of local ingredients with our, within our menu. We then started looking at the issue of waste, and as restaurants, um, our main business is to drive consumption, and that and with that, we produce a lot of waste. Um, and that was kind of like a, a bell that we couldn't unring from that point onwards. But in order to understand it properly, we uh, went out to not only remove single-use plastic uh, in the beginning, but also to try to understand really in actual numbers uh, the amount of waste that we produce. Mm-hmm. And that's when we hired internally a waste officer to do exactly that. So not just make sure that everyone is separating the waste properly within the different production areas in the kitchen, but also... Uh, taking measurement of every single item that leaves the restaurant. And with that, we had three years now. We have now three years worth of data uh, on on the amount of waste that we produce. And that really allows us to make conscious decisions so that we can, you know, I can talk to the team behind the kitchen and and ask and tell them, listen, the last month um, you've had more organic waste produce. So we need to do more with that. Or Mm -hmm. let's look at alternatives for some of the uh, glass items that you're using in certain in certain areas. So that's really how it all started. What and last year... You, and you, and you last, really are becoming sorry. so well known for it. But what I find really interesting, and this is a, a, a real heartfelt compliment, is this is such a choice that you have taken. And it's a choice that some don't take because I feel like there is a bit of, you know, ignorance is bliss sometimes when it comes to us as individuals through, you know, and I do it, you know, we compost, but there's an awful lot of food that still goes in our bin at home. And as we know, um, whether it is the style of food, so whether it's buffet or brunch, you know, the amount of food waste in developed countries is astonishing. And that comes down to the end user. This account comes down to the way food is served or the way it's consumed at home. In developing parts of the world, that food waste is to do with you know, storage or um, inefficient transportation means. But you've taken that decision to really inform yourself. And as you say, years now of data that you can make 
you know, really make informed decisions. So as you say, you know, this is an area where we can improve on. This is an area where you can, you know, use an opportunity to, to innovate from. And this last year, you have really kind of ramped it up. And the, the new spring menu we're going to talk about next, about what is on the menu and why having this isn't about making a compromise on taste or flavour or, you know, creativity. If anything, it's it's the opposite. Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. Brought to you by Spinneys, it is sometimes about picking up ingredients from your local store and giving you ideas about what to do with it. Sometimes it's about letting someone else do the hard work and inviting you to explore some amazing restaurants and attractions on the food front here in the UAE. Speaking now to Omar Shaheb, here is Bocca's GM and sustainability lead, talking about why this DIFC restaurant has decided to put sustainability front and centre of its menu and what might be happening behind the scenes without us even realising. And as I alluded to earlier, this is an exciting challenge, I think, for your head chef. How has he responded? And can you tell us a little bit about some of the items on the menu right now for spring? Sometimes I really have to hold myself um, when I when I come up with all these ideas, <laughs> throwing it at uh, Mateus. But he's been he's been wonderful. He's tremendous, uh, extremely flexible, and very very creative. And actually, he enjoys that when I put him in that box, saying, "Okay, th- these are the ingredients that we're going to cook with. Let's try to put them forward." But you see, all professional kitchens, most professional kitchens. Are, and, and chefs are trained to maximize the utilization of every single ingredient that goes into their, that, that uh, obviously uh, is put on their, on their chopping boards. Um, so that is, so the, the, the challenge or perhaps my task, my role was to show that um, and perhaps try to have it as uh, front and center as, as one of the main ingredients of that dish. So um, none of the, you know, no peels, no chops, no tops, no ends uh, end up in the bend. They're always obviously uh, used to make, let's say, for example, stocks. But we've taken that a step further. We have a dish uh, that we're launching that we call yesterday's bread. <laughs> the base is uh, stale bread. So there's obviously a lot of uh, uh, leftover bread uh, from production. So we use that as uh, a base and it's mixed with uh, olive oil, um, uh, vinegar, and then we use uh, milk that's about to expire to make ricotta cheese. And that becomes kind of the, the, the garnish. Uh, avocado is dipped in tomato powder that is made from tomato skins. We use a lot of tomatoes in uh, the kitchen. Uh, Matt uses that, that skin, dehydrates that, and makes powders that ends up in the dish. So that's one, one of the things that we, that we love... have in the menu. Now, for anyone who hasn't been to Boca, how do you explain the kind of, the, not just the foodie philosophy in terms of sustainability, but what kind of characteristics, influences, cuisine? How do you describe it, Omar? So the inspiration are modern European. Um, some people know us as a tapas restaurant, but that really what that allows us is that creativity. So mm-hmm. it allows us to have that platform to experiment with native uh, species, with local ingredients, um, with all these elements of waste, and then present it in obviously with high-end execution, um, but in a slightly more casual environment, let's say. Now, with the launch of this menu, you've also introduced your first carbon emissions report. How do you begin to calculate it and why have you decided to do this and and really make yourself pretty vulnerable as a restaurant by sharing this information? Last year, we said, okay, we're doing all this work around local sourcing, around being responsible and where we buy our products from, around waste. But what is really the impact of this? What is the the actual impact in, in hard numbers, in hard data? And that's when we partnered with a carbon management consultancy firm called Element 6. They came in and assessed 
the, our entire operation, our consumption of energy from electricity, chilled water, gas, uh, water, uh, our daily commute as employees of, of wow. the restaurant, of Boca. How, you know, where we come, where do we commute from? Do we use a car? What kind of car? Do we carpool? Do you use the metro? Or do we walk? And then we, asset, we um, they studied every single ingredient that we purchased in the last year down to the, down to the peppercorn by weight and by country of origin. So an excruciating survey that took almost six months to complete. But now we have data that shows us that that allows us to understand what is our actual impact. And with this, we're able to make conscious decisions on where we need to make certain changes, whether it's through our waste or through our purchasing. Um, It has actually influenced part of this menu, because as you realize, um, having lamb and uh, beef on our menu uh, is obviously high, has a high impact of carbon. So uh, we're not using a lot of poultry, for example, in our in our dishes. So that's when Chef Mateus decided to add a few more dishes. 60% of our menu today, our spring menu, is vegetarian and vegan. I find this so fascinating. And as I said, this is a choice that you are making so you can go on to make further informed decisions. And I, I, I may be wrong, but this is the first restaurant I've heard of in the UAE who is introducing and revealing a carbon emissions report. Do you think this could be the norm down the line? And that might be two years down the line or maybe 20 as people you know, really demand restaurants to become more accountable. I think it's really um, it's really exciting times for us because we wanted to uh, we wanted to be transparent with our method. We didn't want to just throw uh, these words around on being ethical or or, or uh, uh, responsible when we're sourcing. So we really wanted to first of all understand ourselves, and then by publishing this report, um, offering that transparency. And what it, what we want our guests to know at the end of the day, of course, people come to us looking for a delicious meal in a nice setting. Um, obviously, they've had a hard week or a hard day. Um, all they need to know is that, and this is my challenge, is I will offer you a really delicious meal in a nice environment, but at the same time, you can rest assured, you can know that I'm doing everything that I can, everything to my knowledge, to run a low-impact business. And as you say so, so well, it's about being conscious and delicious. So thank you so much, Omar. As I said, I think this is just such a wonderful example of people really thinking about the industry that they're in and being an example to others and in, in a non-preachy way, just in a, in a wanting to do better and be better and, and make us as diners really think about these things. So I cannot thank you enough. Um, if you want to find out more, you can go to Boca Dubai. That's their Instagram. Um, the menu is there and they have, as I said, been super transparent when it comes to sharing that uh, carbon footprint report. Thank you for your time, Omar. All the very best. I know Fridays are very busy for you guys. I'm going to let you get back to uh, back to the kitchens, back to the team and uh, look forward to coming down and enjoy some of those. Uh, I love this idea. Yesterday's bread. Thank you so, so much. <laughs> Boca Dubai is at DIFC and as I said I think this is going to be the first of many restaurants I hope sharing this kind of information with diners as we demand more information so we can make some really delicious responsible and conscious choices too. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen with Spinneys. Only on Dubai Eye 103.8. We're talking food this afternoon and delighted to be celebrating with Chef Benjamin Wan. He is the head chef of Koi Middle East. Koi Abu Dhabi recently ranked as number 34 in Koi Dubai, scooping the top 13 spot in the best restaurants by Mina's 50 Best Restaurant just a couple of weeks ago. Ben, are you still celebrating in the kitchens? 
Yes, we are. It was a huge achievement for us to to take home uh, 13 and 34 in the UAE. Um, the team is very proud, and I as and as, as I am of them too. So uh, yeah, we're 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 still celebrating. Good as you should, because you know we have got some some great guides and great accolades here in the Middle East. You know, I'm thinking about mm. you know Time Out Awards, What's On Awards, you know Food Divas recent roundups as well. Yeah. But I think there is something to do with that international recognition, especially Koya being an international brand. What what has it meant to you personally and professionally? Um, I mean, to be recognised in the Middle East uh, for sure is a huge achievement. Um, I mean, it's a, the next step from being global. Um, like you said, um, Koya is a global brand and uh, we're just trying to put our, our name forward um, to be recognised globally. But first things first is um, the recognition in the Middle East, which we have just achieved uh, for... Dubai and Abu Dhabi in the UAE. Um, so, so for me personally, it's a huge achievement. And I'm, I'm, like I said before, very proud of the team. Very proud. It was no surprise to me, given that I've got a friend, this is no joke, my friend Naz um, books your restaurant, this is no word yep. of a lie, um, six times a year, and he makes his booking annually because he finds it so hard to get a table. <laughs> So every two months he I has believe, his booking. I believe you also, you, you've also been for brunch as well, I believe. Several times, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Enjoyed myself yeah, a lot. Yeah, <laughs> that's good to hear. But do you know why? Do you know why I love the Koya brunch? I'm, I'm, I'm not talking as a kind of, with my foodie journalist hat on, I'm just talking as someone yeah. who's gone along and paid and had a brilliant time. Is It's got this grown-up vibe to it. It's it, There's no mm. buffet, there's no queuing. The food is absolutely flawless with every single course. And your staff are yep. on point. Like, they really are. And I think for so many restaurants, unfortunately, you have this opening with a really strong team. And then the quality of the service or the interest of the staff or, or how, wherever mm. that comes from just wanes over the years i think koya has just stayed so strong and even during the pandemic when you were doing you know koya to go it was just yeah. it, was, it was just flawless so you've obviously got a really loyal clientele when we think yeah, about the, accolades uh, well, you know I, that must be important as well i think as well as the the clientele it's also the, the staff as well we have a we have a very very strong core team of um service staff and back of our staff who have been with us for years and years and and this definitely helps us execute our, our, our products you know, to the best of our ability and, and to the standard that we we, we, we insist on. So our, our, our team is, 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 is paramount to our success. So tell us, Chef Ben, where did you grow up? Who was cooking and what was on the table? I grew up in Liverpool. I was born in Liverpool, uh, UK. Um, so my parents had uh, restaurants and they were constantly in the kitchen. So that's where I spent my formative years um, around the kitchen because I had no babysitter and... Um, <laughs> You know they had to keep an eye on me, so that's where that's where I spent most of my time. And um, dangerous place to be at that age, but uh, what can you do? <laughs> well, but, you know, um, there's yeah. there's knives, but there's also inspiration. So, was your were your parents Definitely cooking themselves? Absolutely, they were they were cooks. Definitely inspired me to be uh, a chef. Mm-hmm. Although my mum dissuaded me a lot, um, I still pushed through catering college. Um, yeah, the huge inspiration on, on my career they were. Why did they, Why were they discouraging you? The hours, the intensity, but um, they can dissuade, dissuade me as much as they want. But um, I think growing up in that environment, you know, it, it's in your blood. So mm-hmm. it, it was a good, good career choice for me. I think, I mean, they're not wrong, you know, in terms of the hours and the intensity. And you've, you've taken it really oh, yeah. to, the, to the nth degree. Um, you know, pushing yeah. through catering college and then you, you've gone on to work, 
you know, doing private, you know, at homes. You've done, we you were landed cast, you know, <coughs> um, um, unbelievable. What's been the kind of the toughest part? Toughest part of working for all these chefs is, is, is the intensity and the hours. The hours are crazy, crazy, crazy. Um, this was this was back in the day, twenty years ago, where it was the norm. It was normal, but now it's um, it's, it's 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 frowned upon now, which rightly so, because you know the the staff well being is um, is is hugely important. Mm-hmm. So we've moved on since then. Do you think they really have? I mean, we we think about this in other industries about you know wellness in the workplace and mental health being taken seriously, and there are some industries where that's absolutely the case. You know, big corporations who are having you know your yoga and your mental health counselors. You know, the, the very nature of hospitality in F&B is that you guys are working when the rest of us want to go to for, you know, a Saturday brunch yeah, or have a celebration. True. You know, he has big sacrifices along the way. This is true. I mean, yes, while you guys are you guys are eating, we are working. However, in terms of Koya, I mean, the kitchens I'm running, I try to give them a good work-life balance. They, they get uh, three and a half days off and three and a half days off a week, which is, which is, which is very generous mm, in, is. in Dubai and Abu Dhabi. So... We do our best for that. Um, we start. We, I mean, we start with three days off, and now we're implementing the three and a half. So, we do as much as we can for the for the work life balance for the for the team. So, anything we can do. Can we talk about food for anyone that hasn't been through those glorious giant doors at Coir at the Four Seasons? Um, how do you describe the menu, and how do you think it differs perhaps to Coir's elsewhere in the world? Um, we, we, I mean, for Coir Dubai, we, we've slightly. Uh, amended the flavors a little bit we've made it i mean the proven taste and the flavors is very spicy it's very acidic um but for us in dubai we, we've toned it down a little bit to, to cater to the masses um not everyone likes spicy food so you know we toned it down a bit but koya in general you know latin american food latin american flavors huge influence from japan and china so um every location around the world we we, we adapt it to the to the local to the local market just a little bit, just enough so so we can we can um, cater to to lo- the local market. So come on, what's your pick of the menu? I know it probably like choosing a favourite child, but are there any dishes that you're particularly proud of? Um, it is a sea bass casuela. The sea bass casuela is uh, we marinate the sea bass in uh, miso and ahi amarillo. We cook it over charcoal and we serve it on a bed of um, you can say risotto rice. Um, with um, dashi stock, hugely, hugely popular. One of our best sellers, well, I've and seen, rightly so. I've seen dashi stock being made on. Actually, I think it was um, salt, fat, acid, heat on Netflix, which was um, a beautiful documentary. Mm. Can, for anyone who's not familiar about yeah. what goes into some of these kind of core ingredients and, and kind of the lifeblood of so many Asian dishes, can you explain yeah. what dashi is exactly? Dashi stock is dashi stock is basically we, we make a, a stock from kombu water, which is uh, seaweed. And then we, from that combo water, we, we add bonito flakes, which is dried, uh, dried tuna. And from there, we add more seasonings, such as mirin, soy sauce. So in the end, you get a very, a, a very flavorsome stock layered with flavors. And that is the base for, for a lot of our dressings, a lot of our sauces. And, and for this particular dish, the Sibas Casuela, it's, 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 you know, it's the most important part of, our, of that dish. Now, you're not one to rest on your laurels. You've already just scooped two spots in the top 50. But I know Koya yeah. is very ambitious. Can you shed some light on some of the new venues that you've got planned in the region? I, mean, I know, obviously, Saudi is a huge market when we look at expansion. Is that the case for you guys as well? 
Yeah, we just, I mean, yesterday was our opening day for Saudi, which was huge. Um, very exciting for us. Um, today's our second day. We've been here for a month for pre-opening. Um, I mean, yesterday we, was a big night. We did some big numbers. Um, hopefully the guests were very happy. For the next projects, we also have Oman. We also have Bahrain. And we also coming back to Saudi for Jeddah. So all this is happening <laughs> within the space of maybe one to two, three years. So it's, 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 it's very heavy, but exciting. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen with Spinneys. Only on Dubai Eye 103.8. We are getting you in the mood for the weekend in conversation with Chef Benjamin Wan. He is the head of Koya Middle East, probably one of the most unique restaurants here in Dubai, but they're spreading their wings to Saudi, Oman and Bahrain. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. Now, here's a question, and this I don't mean this to sound negative, but how do you then con- kind of ensure the quality, really, that consistency that diners who have either known the Koya brand by name or have come to love it through the food can get what they're expecting if they go to a new outlet? It is, yeah, it is difficult, but um, it's difficult but doable. We have a we have a we have a strong we have a strong team in all our locations who have um, been trained very well. Um, I myself go to all the locations as much as I can. Um, based in Dubai, I go to Abu Dhabi regularly. Um, Doha, I go every few months. I'm in contact with the chefs as much as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's all about communication, really. Mm-hmm. Communication and regular tasting wherever I can. And just, just having a core team around you that you can trust also. And, you know, as I said earlier, you've worked with some incredible big names and now you're that big name. You're the one with, you know, resumes and CVs and dishes passing your desk trying to get your attention. What do you look for when it comes to assembling a team, whether it's for the existing branches or for a new outpost? I think attitude is important. Attitude, willingness to learn, willingness to listen um, more than skills, because skills we can teach. Attitude is very hard to is is very hard to change. People have to come in the right mindset. As long as they have the right mindset, we can we can achieve any, anything with them. So that is one of the, our prime prime targets for for recruiting the right staff. Attitude. And then what about you? You know, you started as a as a chef, you know, almost as a child, and now as you get more successful, mm. are you still able to spend some time in the kitchen? I am in the kitchen always. Um, more, more, more in the kitchen with my family, to be honest. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I miss my kids a lot. Mm-hmm. But um, the the, com- the koi has given me a lot. The kitchen has given me a lot back. Um, it's taken me to a lot of places worldwide, uh, Middle East especially. So um, sacrifices have been made. Um, but I, I, I think it's worth it um, to see koi expand and be successful. It's a uh, it's, it's a nice it's nice uh, sight to see. Well, you've got a lot to be proud of, as does the team, and I'm, I'm mm. glad that there's there's been ongoing celebrations and, and plenty of reasons for you know past achievements and, and kind of future excitements as well. So, if anyone's going to mm. go to Koya yes. this weekend, whether it's Abu Dhabi, Dubai, you know, jetting off to Riyadh, Muscat later this month, um, can you tell us maybe a few dishes that you feel like if you haven't eaten, you haven't had the Koya experience? You mentioned earlier that beautiful fish dish. Anything else we should be ordering, Chef? Yeah, the sea bass casserole, as I mentioned before. The spicy beef fillet, um, which is one of our DNA dishes globally. Um, for dishes that you can find in the Middle East, we have the, the avocado king crab. Um, 
in between uh, in between um, sliced avocado and coconut dressing. Um, our chocolate fondant is a huge seller. Our churros, sweet oh, churros, the churros. Churros. Leche. Oh, yes. amazing. <laughs> that that is also you will also find that in, in all our global um, locations. So these 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 standout dishes are you know you should look out for for sure. Oh. Well, you won't be disappointed. you've made us very hungry indeed. And as I said, you've made the whole, whole Koya family very proud of all of your incredible hard work. Um, stay busy. So I'll much. tell my friends to be booking months in advance. I think that's what you need to do right Thank now you, to get you. to get through those uh, through those doors. Chef Ben, have a fantastic weekend ahead. Keep working hard and we Thank enjoy so looking forward Thank to you. eating the fruits of those very hard labours. Take care of yourself. Thank you. See you soon.